0: And that's where my love of data really starts to evolve and the science of selling, because I would have associated selling to be more of an art, whereas I'm totally on the other way now. It's 90% science and 10% art. That's it.
1: That's Vinny Lynch, co-founder and chief revenue officer of Graphite Note. More than that, he knows the journey of developing sales teams, which use data as their primary ally. He believes in curiosity and connection and paints a very different picture of salespeople because he's someone you'd look forward to doing business with. He can always find an answer to an obstacle in the sales process and still leave you smiling. Listen for the practical nuggets he shares with us in this episode of Your Truth Shared. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell I know I like to talk about sales every now and again, but I like to talk about it from different angles. And I have found you someone that uh, we've had loads of great conversations over the years, but I found you someone that loves the data. A salesman that loves CRM, loves coaching, is actually quite uh, gentle in his approach to sales, which I think is really interesting and extremely results focused. And it's this beautiful combination that I want to explore of this data results, but still relationship building, you know, kind, all of that stuff. Really good way to re- reframe sales for all of you. I'd like you to welcome Finney Lynch.
0: Hi, Finola. Good good afternoon and thank you for having me.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Yeah, we've had these great conversations over the years, haven't we, about sales and marketing and how they really should be working together and You know, uh, and I've always loved them because we've always explored how could we integrate them better?
0: Yeah, I think we're probably both very curious by nature. And um, uh, you you, you always strike me as being a bit like me. You've got this thirst for knowledge and how to do things better. And and I'm always looking for marginal gains. And a lot of the time, you know, you, you, you hear the same rhetoric or the same narrative all the time. But, you know, for me, a lot of the secrets are in the data and essentially the data well, I absolutely think intu- intuition is really important I think data really helps to give a solid base from which to then bring your intuition to the to the table. So to me, the data' is like the cake, and the intuition is like the icing.
1: but it's funny because you're such a relationship person too. you're really you have a background in in building sales teams and helping them look it's a it's not this hard kind of piece that we're. Thinking about, you know, the hard data, you think about the hard data, but as a tool to use. But it's a very unusual blend of this, as I said, gentleness, this coaching approach with the data. Do you think you're unusual?
0: Yeah, I, I probably am a little bit. Um, I think my personality has always been one where I, you know, like to get on with people. Do I like to please? Probably. And um, that's just who I am. But I also am very always keen to call, you know, I not know if I can curse, but bullshit, bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think data is a great way of doing that. So I think in sales, a lot of the time you are dealing with ego or you're dealing with people who feel sometimes threatened by, by too much questioning. Whereas, you know, good salespeople are always happy to have sound conversations based on data, because it really guides them, if you like, in terms of, you know, how many leads am I getting? How many am I converting? How many am I moving? Do I need help here? Because I didn't move much forward in that category last week. And it's just that openness and kind of what I call a reasonable approach. And if you base the conversation on data points, it helps you to build really good conversations and helps you to identify where you can help people, where you coach them, but it also Good salespeople will be looking for the edge. They'll be looking at ways to to try and evolve and be better. And when you deal sometimes with what I would call maybe sometimes people have the stereotype of the ego, big ego driven salesperson, they're actually in the minority a lot of the time. Um, and, and one of the challenges is they can be very successful as well. Mm. Um, so you're trying to bring them on a data journey. But a lot of the time they'll start from a place of, you really can't teach me anything. I know it already, you know? I know what I'm doing. Who are you to come in here and kind of try and guide me and and make me better? Um, And really in that conversation, you know, I start with, well, you know, you are really good, your numbers are really good. And if you could help us with with data, we could actually help other team members and other colleagues to improve and be better.
1: Like it's very interesting because I've working with companies for so many years. I see that a lot that that um, that ego in the salesperson. Do you think is ego there? Whether they're good or not good?
0: Yeah, the most <laughs> frustrating thing is there, the most the most frustrating thing is when the ego's there and they're not good because then you have a bigger issue. Um, so you know, to me, um, the baseline has to be we use CRM to give us insights to help make the organization better, and that's our people, our process, our information, and as an organization, that's how we will succeed. If a salesperson doesn't believe in CRM and believe in the the benefits of, of of looking for insight and looking for trends or to address problems, then they're operating more as an island. And that's not scalable. And they're not the type of players you're going to need in your team as you grow. And um, it might get you to a certain period. It might get you in a startup from zero to one. Um, but it won't get you from the, the five to ten because you do need at that level to have people who are working together to help the entire team. So if you take a software as a service business, there's the acquiring the customer, there's the onboarding the customer, there's the retaining the customer, and there's the growing, the lifetime revenue of the customer. That's often four different teams. And without if one of those data blocks or one of those teams decides not to commit and, and do their part in, in in providing the data blocks of those four teams, then, you know, Foundations aren't strong, and the own analogy the wall starts to fall down so i think it's it really is that that team approach that it, it it's really important even more important
1: if you went into an organization and the sales guy refused to do the c r m would you be encouraging him to to leave says she very diplomatically
0: <laughs> yeah no in, in in a word yes mm. if the if if the if the the aspirations of the company were growth and to bring more people on, then you know the modern organisation. You know we look for edges in data, and if we're not going to be able to get good baseline data, then it's not going to work out. So, in a word, yes. Now that can be quite controversial if you've got someone who's really really good, but there are other ways. I've been in organisations where the CEO will say, "But he or she is really really good, and they're so good and they make so much money. They're a rainmaker for us. I will actually hire someone." To sit with them or to be, be be there for an hour or two a day that they can talk to on the phone while they're in the car, dash with do meetings, and that person will update the CRM. Now, that's counterintuitive in some respects, because it's is that fair towards the rest of the team? Probably not. And over time, again, in tracking the data, even that person, in my experience, starts to see the value. So really you're doing it. Ideally, for the short term, and um, in order to, I suppose, what's the word I'm looking for, Integrate them to a new way of thinking. Um, so, if they are a maker and they're quite effective for the company, you don't want to just obviously look to exit them and and kill the company because then there's nothing yeah, to, 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 you know, to But how grow. long
1: would you um, give them? <laughs> Sorry but these guys.
0: Uh, no, not at all. It's a really good question. It's a really good question. Like you know, things don't move fast. Um, a lot of the time, is as much as we'd like to think they do, so I'd like to say three to six months, but more likely six to twelve, but certainly within twelve months. Yeah,
1: I was thinking a year.
0: Yeah, max. Yeah, yeah max. 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 And and I think I think the onus is on the leadership. Then, so sometimes in companies, you know, you see this with with management teams. They have this perception of all well, sales are a different animal, right? So we we'll kind of leave that them and their other field over there. But would I actually would say that it's the leadership team's job to integrate sales. So the leadership team and particularly the CEO um, has a real real responsibility. To, and in fact, it's a measure of his his success as a CEO or her success as CEO in their ability to integrate a really good salesperson to the data model. And um, now they can get helped by finance. They can help by operations. They can get helped by the customer success, people who run and, and mine customers. But ultimately, it's their job. And I do like to, to do a carrot and a stick here. So to help the CEO with that, I'm a huge believer in and, I you know, I always recommend this in companies is a portion of the bonus or a portion of the commission should be directly targeted to CRM hygiene. So you may not like it, but there are certain things we all have to do in life that we don't like. If you don't like school, it doesn't mean you can't go to school. You have to go to school. So I, I would link bring it back into the carrot and the stick and, and incentivize them to be compliant if you need to.
1: Oh, interesting. Hadn't heard that before. That's a really great Mm. idea. The other the other thing that it sparks in me is I often see in organizations where they're afraid to talk to the sales guy because hands off, they're bringing in the revenue. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not, you know, keep them in that silo as long as they're generating revenue.
0: Yeah. And it's very interesting. I, I, I do see that, too. So. I'm gonna 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 reverse it a little bit, and an, an enabler to combat that yes. is to say, it's five to ten times more expensive to acquire a customer than to retain and grow an existing one. What are our opportunities for growth within our customers? Now, the baseline for that conversation is start in data. How much are we doing with them? How often do they order? When do they order? Do we know how they're growing their business? Where are they planning to go to next at a strategic level? How can we align ourselves to that business as they as they grow? And these are conversations that become very comfortable then around data because you need actually data to be able to do that. Mm. And if you can show the salesperson that in doing this and helping us grow um, their revenue, they could actually potentially make more commission easier if they were to work with us on this. Mm. And so, I'm a huge believer in that. Is, is bring them on the journey, um, and so it's not a. I'm always looking for carrots and sticks. I'm always looking for rationale behind why it's good for the person, as well, and, and not just good for the company. Yeah. Um, and I do think they are directly tied. And I think we should always um, not lose sight of the fact that it's always good to reward salespeople, whether it's for new revenue or retaining uh, customers, a commission on retaining customers. And and sometimes I come across CFOs, not that they get a little bit greedy, but it becomes starts to become counterintuitive for me. When I hear people saying, well, they brought in the business and yeah, that they have to do a quarterly account manager meeting. That's just life. I say, yeah, but they're not going to grow much more business with that customer because that customer is kind of maxed out with us. So what's in it for the salesperson to meet them each quarter? Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing in it for him or her, what's driving them to really have the best meetings? So if you're not going to reward them for for helping manage the account, then get, you know, look at a different model. Look at Okay, we've got hunter farmer. With someone will bring the 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 PO to the door. The farmer will take it off them, process the PO on board the customer, and help grow that customer. So you're you're better off in that scenario with that division. And too many times you'll see companies that have the salesperson. They also want them to be the person who helps with the onboarding, and they want them to be the person who account manages the customer. And then they'll say, but they're not doing enough new sales. Mm. And customers can be needy. Yeah. And customers can pull pull you and drag you and good salespeople want to mind their customers. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very tricky one, whereas really what you want in a good salesperson is to say, I'm done. I handed you the PO, it's over. Goodbye, Mr. Customer. And I see some companies do this really well, like enough and sales, but Salesforce do this really well, mm. I'm going to say it anyway, where they will be with you all the way until the PO and they're gone. Yeah. And I don't mean that from the point of view of it being a bad thing. It's a great thing yeah. because you actually start to know where you stand.
1: But it also it helps you become more aware in the business that there are these four stages. Like that's really important yeah. to see that and each has to be resourced.
0: Yeah, it does. And, and I suppose the financial model has to make sense. But it questions and I suppose it challenges your your resource organization or how you structure your, your, your organization. You know, can you support those four blocks in saying a SaaS company of, you know, bringing in the PO, onboarding, minding the customer, growing the customer. And you could find that that could all be, say, under a chief revenue officer. And it could be two functions of those. In, it, sorry, it might only actually be two functions who mm. deliver those four blocks. Yeah. It could be, you know, business development deliver, that you know, or sales deliver block one. And the other three blocks are delivered by the customer success organization. That's okay. Mm. But it's still important to recognize them as as being being blocks, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's it's something that you have to reward people to, to to sometimes I won't say reward them to do the right things for your organization. But also there's things we have to do as grown ups that we don't like doing. And if you don't like CRM and you don't see the value in it, well, that's just the way it is in our company. We have to do it.
1: Yeah. So do you think every company, regardless of size, should have CRM?
0: I think they should have a CRM mindset. If I'm a company and I've got five customers and they're, you know, Two hundred grand each, um, and it's very relationship heavy. And you know, I'm going to say something which probably won't make sense. Which is that: Do I need the level of depth and level of insight in order to manage that relationship? I probably don't in a, in the first instance. However, if you're not evolving, you're not moving. You're not going to progress. Someone else is going to try and come and get your breakfast, um, and that's when competition will creep in. But, but invariably, there are very few companies. That operate like that. There's very few companies with five customers who are doing two, three hundred grand each and that's you one and a half million. And so yes, the answer is yes. I I am a huge believer in 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 and it's the process, it's the discipline. So I'll give you an example. When I go into a startup and I, you know, over the years and I've worked with various different startups, the first thing I do is say, Are we tracking activity? And someone might say, Oh, you're micromanaging. Yeah. No. We have a market, a total addressable market of you know, just make make some eighteen hundred sweet spot companies. How many a week are we talking to? That's our first metric. And then, what are we sharing with them? So that starts to become a marketing metric in terms of content. You know, what are we getting? What are we building in order to share with them? And how many are in stage one, which is you know initial contact? How many are in stage two, which is first meeting? How many are in stage three, who are gathering some requirements and helping work out if we've got a something that could really help them? How many are in stage four? We've proposed a solution at a price that, you know, meets with their budget. We're talking to the right people and they have a need and they have a timeline for a PO. How many have gone into negotiation where we're actually in the, we expect this to close and we're in the finer detail of redlining contracts, maybe a little bit of discounting or a little bit of um, bartering where, you know, I'm discounting. I don't like to getting something back. So I'll give you 5% off, but I need a video case study. You know, how many are in that stage? Um, and then, so so it's like the, it's it's the funnel approach, you know, like you'll be very familiar with Vanola marketing. But to me, it, even a startup starting off today um, should follow that discipline because at any stage, when you're ever confused about what you should be focusing in, you know, you get up in the morning and you look at your CRM and it right. will tell you.
1: Yeah. But I also like this little nugget that you dropped there, which is the whole idea of discounting. You want something for it.
0: It's Always.
1: not, you're discounting not to get the gig or the product sold. You're discounting to get something else.
0: Always looking at, there's tiers of discounting. So I'm going to give you an example, in a SaaS company and, um, you know, and I had this experience myself about probably 13, 14 years ago doing a deal in, in the UK. Uh, it was probably £30,000 of, of, a, of a software license um, with, with a startup. And the company we were dealing with didn't realize that they were our third customer. Right, or, or they would be if they signed the deal. Yeah. and the CEO or the MD was quite tough guy. He was in construction. He's a good guy, like, but robust mm-hmm. in his in his kind of approach and things. And He said, "Look, I'm not going above this price. That's it." Mm-hmm. And you know, he knew that I was the guy who had the ability to make the decision, and um, because there was no one above me at that stage. So, um, I, at that stage, of the conversation, you know, I had to make the call. So I said, "Look, Trevor, I will help you, but I need you to do something for me in return." This is the lowest volume price we we'll ever have done in those on your third customer, um, and which no was much. but it was true, yes. technically true, and um, <laughs> I wasn't lying. It was technically true. Um, I said, "Look, but I'm going to need um, two introductions from you to friends of yours in the industry. I'm going. We I, I really want you to ask ask you to do phone calls. I'm going to need a video case study from you when you have um, when we've proven the value to you, um, and." Uh, I, I, you know, I'd love just a written testimonial as well that we can use the website. Wow. And he said, well, and he said, "Okay, I'm not going to give you the video because I don't like doing video. But if I'm happy, I'll do the testimonial. And actually, instead of the two phone calls, I'm chairman of a uh, kind of industry association. And there are nine other companies plus us going to a lunch in two weeks time. Why don't you come as my guest to the lunch? It's in a private dining room and you can do a demo at the end of the lunch. To the other, to the other nine CEOs uh, of, of of peer companies, and we picked up another three just from that from that lunch that day. Who, because Trevor had us, they were they were interested in finding out more. They felt that they might be missing out on a trick because yes. he was kind of, you know, a thought leader. You know, thought leaders. Uh, the wrong word? He was a he, he was progressive in his in his engagement with technology. So. So, yeah, but asking, So, when you're asking,
1: negotiating that, just out of curiosity, because when you were saying, you asked them for all of that, is what I was thinking
0: to mm. myself. Always ask for way more than he yeah, you'd be happy with. Because I
1: was going, Always. wow, you're cheeky.
0: And. <laughs> What's to lose? You're in the moment, you've nothing to lose. So, if, if I said a, a written testimonial, because, geez, I'm not sure, I probably still would have done the deal if he said no. So, I may as well ask. I, if I walked down there with the written testimonial, I'd have been happy, because it's telling be nothing. And at the end of the day, it's a it's a, it's a reference or it's a leverage point. Yeah, you know. Um. So I always ask for more, much always. more than
1: you'd accept.
0: Always. And you know, the worst thing they can do is say no. Yeah. You know. And in fact, most people like the crack of. You managed to cheeky. Um. <laughs> I know they're new to the market. I know they're new to the market. I don't realize they only have two other customers because he hasn't told me that, so I don't know that. Um. But but they're being cheeky. But look look, they're new want to help. You know, we want to help them out, and I would appeal to that and say look, if you see value in that, do you have any friends in the industry who would get value from what you're seeing? And there's a great word, friends is really much more important than contacts because friends are people you would like to help. Contacts are people you met at a dinner two years ago who you're just not going to reach out to, but a friend you might. And there's thing: people often look for too much in terms of introductions and referrals. Ask for one or two. So where I'm going to go against what I just said there and asking for loads of stuff, on on the discount, when it comes to introductions, if I had gotten one introduction, I'd have been delighted.
1: But you effectively got nine.
0: I effectively got nine, but I I purposely said two. If you give me two introductions, and yeah. I had my head going, I'm to go to get one. I'm delighted. But yeah. if you asked for 10, I'd never gotten the 10. In fact, if I'd asked for 10, I probably you wouldn't mean, have got invited to lunch. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but, the, but setting that up meant... He could come back to you and negotiate himself and you both got what you wanted. You both got more than you wanted then.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's um there's a great line as well, particularly for earlier stage companies, when someone says, um, well, I'm not going to do a, a video please study or testimonial with you. I, I don't know, you know, you, I haven't seen your pilot in action yet and you don't have that many use cases and um, a social proof. I say, well, Absolutely. But the only reason I'm asking you is, I won't come to you until it's doing what I said it's going to do. And I'm actually using it as a way to get the deal over the line. And because I'm also saying to them is, and I'm so confident in this, I'm, that's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, you know, as in, this is going to do what it says it does. Yeah. So I won't come to you until you're happy, but I will be coming to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: so, and yeah. um, you might sound a bit ballsy, but I just. No, I like that. It sets the tone. It's like, what, why are we here? Almost, you yeah. know. if. You know, if, if you don't believe in it and, and I don't believe in it, we shouldn't be here. You you're telling me you believe in it, but you're kind of josting on pricing. Like let's let's work that out and let's get on with doing what we know you're going to want to give me a video case study about in the future.
1: <laughs> Great. Tell me, how did you come to sales?
0: In a roundabout way, so I, I did I went to college in Limerick, in University of Limerick, I did Insurance and European Studies, and you might say, you did what? Yeah. Um, I did Insurance in European Studies and I'll tell you why I did it. It was 1992. At the time, um, there was a business studies class in UL of 300. And within six months of graduation in 1991, and um, 10% had jobs. Mm. So there were two hundred and seven you didn't. So I was going through business studies. But instead of that, I went out to college and I went and found out what had the highest employment rates in the area of business yeah. and Insurance was one that I was like, oh, that's business. Yeah, I like that. I'm social. And I was quite a social person. So I did that degree and they had they had 95% placement within a few months. It was just, you know, companies liked that course. There was only 13 in the class. So I did that, decided and I lived at home. I was from Limerick, 1986. I was finished and said, hey, the center of the insurance world is London. I'm going to move to London. So I moved to London and got a job as a Lloyd's insurance broker and got, found my way into sales in that way, where you essentially go around You know, selling um, a a risk. So I'll give you an example. We did Jewelers Block and Fine Art. I know a Guy from Limerick, I knew nothing about it, but you learn on the go. Um, And at one stage we did, we insured the world's largest diamond. It was 72 million pounds was the value of the diamond back in 1998. And that would, but that was spread out probably by across more than 20 different insurers. And so you'd have to go out and essentially fill the card by talking to them and negotiating on rates. That's where I kind of got into the world of sales came back in two thousand, joined Terry group um and spent seven years there wonderful like amazing mm-hmm. education i I always get accused of having um having um i throw sort of rose tinted glasses on when I talk about Terry, but like if you were good enough, you were old enough, like so many people there in their early mid twenties in serious positions of authority and um, because they were good enough and that's the way Terry operated and that just rewarded with with lo- in reverse, with huge loyalty yeah. because people worked hard and um, because they were believed in. Spent seven years there, um, was in a specialist role, kind of in-house insurance manager. So I was running the in-house insurance program and always felt to probably something else I might do. Um, it was before I had um, family and um, three co-founders of a, a software company called Danseed and Tralee, where I was based. Uh, one of them came to me and said, "Look, we're going to, we're we're launching a product. We're developing it at the moment. We're looking for a CEO. Would you come on board?" And I was like, yeah, "Absolutely, I'll talk to you about it." Mm. So I spoke. We spoke. I ended up jumping in there, and then that was my baptism of fire because you essentially go from PLC protected business to a startup where you're wondering how you're going to pay the wages mm. pretty quickly. And um, so it ended up being a a baptism of fire. Invest that was in 2007. Um. In 2007, the recession started to kick in. We were just getting going, and mm. um, and Ireland fell apart. You know, we were construction, software, as a service business. So, the early customers we had, including our friend Trevor, who we talked about, were based in London. So, I decided to move to London, uh, the sales office. And while in, in my head, my title was CEO, I was just head of sales. Really, there was only eight, nine, ten people in the business, um, and and did that for. Geez, I was there nearly seven years, and and loved it. Um, fantastic experience, really just thrown into sales. But in the middle of that journey, I was lucky enough to, to get onto the International Selling Programme, which is run by TU Dublin and Enterprise Ireland. And it's essentially kind of the first formal, what I'd call business slash degree level um, sales training, like where it's not theoretical lecturers in a room. It's people who've done it in a room who are in talking to you and guiding you on international selling. So it was over a year, it was a postgraduate diploma, Incredible cohort, got, got access to fantastic expertise and, and, and guidance. And that's where my love of data um, really started to evolve and the science of selling, because people would have always, I would have associated selling to be more of an art, whereas I'm totally on the other way now. It's 90% science and 10% art, mm. that's it. Um, and I, I've yet to be proven otherwise in the last 10 years. Do you think years.
1: that you <clears throat> have to have a natural ability for it, though, as well? Or do you think anyone can learn it?
0: I think anyone can learn it, but I think if you have a good social you know, or a good personality, it absolutely will help you. EQ, emotion intelligence is probably the most important thing. Good conversationalist. You don't have to have an amazingly exciting life, but mm. you know, good EQ, good conversationalist and follow process. And this to me is the secret sauce looking at the sales process through the lens of the buyer. So instead of talking sales process, start talking buying process Mm. and start thinking buying process. They are trying to navigate their way through a purchase. How can you help them on their terms? Forget about how you think it should be done. Go and talk to them and listen to them and give them what they need on their terms for each step of their journey.
1: I say this a lot to clients and to people on my programs. And what, what kind of surprises me is this always seems to be a revelation that we that we have to focus on what their journey is and not ours. Why do you think it's such a revelation? Is it just because we're it's our business and we're just in our own headspace too much as human beings, or what why do you think that happens? Why is it such a shock?
0: It's it's very interesting. I think a lot of businesses um have, have the baby mentality, which is it's my baby. Mm. And I'm, and, you know, I, I have my baby and I know how to feed my baby and know how to nurture my baby. and know how to support my baby. And whereas, you know, if you, you know, and this is probably a really bad analogy, but it, you know, it, it, if, if, if the buyer doesn't care about your baby, then, right, you know, and, and your baby is a, is a commercial enterprise, you know, where it's a piece of equipment or, a, a service or a solution to someone's problem. But if it's not in tune with the problem or in tune with the need of the, the buyer, then is it just an experiment? Or are you doing it for self fulfillment? Because you're not doing it as a commercial enterprise that you can grow. So so that's that's a lot. And you see that a lot with technical founders. It's like, how dare you challenge my product? My product's amazing. Fantastic. Who said that? I did. Who cares? Yeah. So what? Yeah. What's the market think? Because ultimately the market dictates. The market decides how they want to embrace something and how they if they want if they want it in the first place. Now, there are things you can do to help the market, which is things like understanding what it is they're looking for, nurturing them along the lines of why your product is or service or a good fit for them. Um, but ultimately it's usually because you see a lot, as I said, with technical founders, it's their baby. As opposed to it being um, having the impact, maybe it needs to have for the buyer. So when Rather I look than at the a business, buyers, baby, exactly, yeah, exactly. So like when I when I look at any business, and, and you know, we're talking about graphite in a while, but when I look at graphite, and um, I'm I'm a huge believer, I'm a huge fan of the impact that technology has. I don't really care how the technology is built. And this might sound like sacrilege to say this, but my, my technical co-founder here will be blocking his ears. Uh, it, there's a move will.
1: in that direction now, anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: impact. It's about impact. If you can't make impact, why are you bothered?
1: Yeah. You know, but that's not confined to technical. I mean, that's anyone who cares, who built something. You know, either emotionally or physically or whatever way you want to say it, is going to feel like that. It's it's. Tell me what would it's you a tie. say.
0: Yeah. yeah. What would you say to
1: entrepreneurs that, because I think this is the clue to this fear of selling, whereas if they spent more time in the buyer's shoes, in the customer's shoes, that fear of selling would disappear in my experience.
0: Do you Absolutely. How do you
1: feel about that?
0: Yeah, yeah, hugely. And um, so it's funny, um, I'm talking to someone and um, I was helping someone at the moment, just a, a friend, and um, he has the challenge in his business. Um, a challenge he perceives in sales, but he's not spending any time with the customers. Yeah. So,
1: which reminds me of the thing that you said to me when we had our intro call, which is, yeah,
0: one of the things that
1: you do every time is you make the CEO go out on the road with you
0: every time. Get out on the road, and you know, or go on the road and go and listen. Now, the problem with technical CEOs mm. often they'll they'll pick up on something, go, geez, we should do that, and now they've gone back to the original trap of building something based on one person's input yeah. as opposed to being a market need. But but still better to be out there doing that and to be able to to have those challenging conversations um and learning about the learning about what the customers are looking for. And there's there's um I was speaking to someone recently and they were saying, you know, we like to give the customers what they want um and and very, very admirable in that regard, but 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 are you measuring the profit margin? Because yes. not all good not all business is good business. So it has to be aligned to, in some way, some sort of, I suppose, growth strategy. And your growth strategy is either, you know, we might be taking the turnover on to achieve something else at a lower margin, because it could be strategic for our business, or it could be that, no, those products are too low, and we just need to position how we say no. You know,
1: which brings um, me to the next step on your journey when you decided that you had an entrepreneurial itch that you wanted to scratch. <laughs> and uh, and you you said to me, I looked at it Finola, and I decided I was either going to do courses or I was going to get involved in a tech startup.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So I was after Don Seed, I, I went to Canada. My wife, she, she was um, she's Irish, but and uh, from Waterford. But she um, she was very um, patient with me and in the startup journey, and I felt it was time to repay that. So she wanted to pursue a career angle. So we went to live in the, in the wilds of Alberta, which was an incredible experience. Um, and We were there for nearly five years. And during that time, I was doing coaching, kind of what I've been doing in the last three years, a lot of coaching um, with people. And I would use the international selling program and that whole data as a, our sales as a science kind of methodology behind all of the coaching. So that was really interesting. Um, so, I did that, and then came back and worked um with Terry Toon and Taxpa International for a couple of years, um, and yeah. really enjoyed that some fantastic people, like incredible team and um, right. down there in keny and, and and internationally, and we grew out the sales team, and I just felt I, I kind of really enjoyed the coaching a lot, mm. and i I was kept getting that pull back into it. so I decided to just before COVID to get back in and and kind of paddle my own canoe again on the coaching side. So I ended up in the last two years in kind of sales coaching and doing some kind of what I call contract work around, you know, head of sales, fractional head of sales, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of one day a week with companies, helping them get good practice in order. And that kind of keeps you match fit because you're in execution mode. You're not just guiding, you're doing. So we enjoy that. And, you know, some of the conversations I had with you over the last few years, I was really thinking of going down the online course route. And I'm much better in person than I am as a creator. And I know this might sound counterintuitive. And maybe, you know, you said to me, on well, you should write a book. I was like, well, I need someone to a tape recorder and someone to actually write the book because <laughs> I talk and they can write. And um, because I'm just, I'm just not as strong on, on the creative side. But I'm quite good in person and, and I've always rated myself in that. And I'm good to read a room and to read what people, what help that they need. So uh, that that's the route that I, I pursued. And then I had this itch to scratch and I'd, sp- I'd spoken to a few people about an idea for a startup around um, onboarding salespeople Kind of within the first ninety days, and and really having an impact, and again not being, I'm very self-aware, and um, and I know that I'm not great on the creative side, so I thought to myself, the ideal for me now would be to meet the person who has the idea and who's actually building it, and then I could come in and be the commercial co-founder. So you'd have a builder and a commercializer. if if that makes sense, so someone who focuses on the commercialization. So I found that I'd say um, they'd was, be
1: gagging for you.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just, look, the proof is the, the proof is in the eating. Umola, yeah. so we'll see. But so I met um Harvoy um, who's a Croatian data scientist. I was doing a Founders Friday event for the RDI hub. It's part of the NDRC network, um, they're down in Kerry. And I was doing a piece on cell science, mm. um, a, kind of a workshop back in March. Merravoy in one of the breakout groups, and he this wonderful, um, half full, I would say ninety percent full, last ninety percent full kind of approach to life, which I really like. I, I love positive energy, and I feed off that. And um, but he dealt with really two really important use cases, which I kept coming across all the time in my coaching work. Which is, you know, the cost of new leads is increasing all the time, so you need to convert more of what you get. Number mm-hmm. one, and number two. Customers are so expensive to acquire. You need to hold on to them and as many of them as you can. And he had this beautiful um, machine learning um, capability that he built to an code platform to essentially give medium sized businesses and mid market businesses access to the data science capabilities that big enterprises would have. Mm. And and this is phenomenal in terms of the speed at which it uh, you know it was able to turn around results. So we started talking, and, and we, we we got uh, I suppose commercially married, front of a better word during the summer, and I just started that journey with Graphite Note, and and yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I suppose I'm a would be buyer of the product, mm. and so I had a bit of an itch to scratch on the on the on the startup side, but when I saw this, it became very adamant adamant to me. I was able to to get involved in something where I knew I'd have an impact because. I would be the person who's actually buying the product. So,
1: so you're a you're a believer from the beginning.
0: Usually, yeah. Mm. Like I am the buyer number one. Number two, I'm able to validate it with with a lot of my network in terms of um you know CMOs, VPs of sales. In terms of if I had X, would you be interested in it? Absolutely. You know, come back to me. So we're building that out at the moment. Products products just live. We're doing a proof of values with a number of of companies in the SaaS space but we'll be able to go broader than that because the model is the same so it's it's essentially data
1: but share because i i love this use of ai and machine learning um and how it simplifies share with us what is the difference between your what you're talking about here with graphite and salesforce
0: yeah so so um if you look at any of the big crms salesforce hubspot um uh, pipe drive, Zoe, they all capture data throughout the sales journey. So from an elite comes in the door to an elite closes and, and becomes one business or 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 um or doesn't you know closes stays for while and leaves. So there's data points there. So a lot of the time as of, you know in a in a role as head of sales, you'll do maybe a monthly closed loss analysis and close one analysis where you're trying to learn from the wins to help you, you know, influence increasing those win rates. And you're trying to learn from the losses to help you decrease loss rates going forward, but you end up having been in these meetings, you know, with so many different companies, you end up grouping. So you end up saying that falls into that bucket, one bucket, two bucket, three bucket, four, and you say like last to competitor, last in price, and last in features, and you know, in action, right? There might be four categories, so it ends up getting grouped. Whereas what we do is we take all the data points in that customer's journey from the day they were a lead to the day they closed them, you retained them or you lost them. And we uh, essentially train a model to understand based on the deals yeah. that you've won, what does a good lead look like when it comes in? So picture a scenario where you have so all of your historical predictive. data. Yes, predictive lead scoring. That's in essence what we're doing. So if I have 20 leads overnight, um, which you, which a lot of software as a service businesses would have, or, or lots of, B2B businesses would have, you know, 20 leads overnight. We can tell you at a probability of greater than 80% what who your top leads are. So there might be three leads above 80% probably closing. There might be seven. So we're then telling you, call these three first or these seven. Whereas at the moment, all leads get treated equally. And we start calling unknowns to ourselves the, the last rank 20, rank 19, rank 18, rank 17. We just don't know. We're just calling them. Whereas there's a direct um, correlation between the propensity of someone to to buy from you and the speed at which you respond in most businesses. So, speed of response is really important. So, if you can respond positively to someone where you've already got an insight before you speak to them on why they're a good fit, then um, you're you on to something. And it's going back to the thing of science, marginal gains. We're looking for gains against our competitors. The, the silver bullet in, in many ways is all these marginal gains. So, to me, what really attracted me was. The predictive lead scoring was a marginal gain that mid-size businesses just weren't getting access to.
1: But I like this idea or this insight also that all leads are not equal.
0: Yeah, all leads are not equal and all customers are not equal. So, I, you know, we're doing a proof of value at the moment with a company in Europe and they have 6,000 customers. Average deal size is kind of 9 to, I think it's 9 to 11 is the range. Revenue, that's just how they're, their average deal size work per year um, and they're losing uh, 50 to 60 a month. Now, that's normal because they're gaining 70 to 80 a month. Mm. So they're they're still in good growth, but they're leaking at the other end. So what they've asked us to do is focus on, on the other end of the funnel is to help us understand the characteristics of our customers that look like they could be at danger or at risk of being unhappy or a risk of, or maybe they're unhappy and at risk of leaving us. Mm. So again, what we would do is we would train the model to say, based on all the customers you've lost and all the data points over that journey from your existing customers tomorrow morning, who are the top or who is there any above 80% probability of risk of churning? There is fantastic. They're the ones you want to call instead of calling, you know, all your customers all the time, or even periodically quarterly reviews. You want to spot the stuff outside of the quarterly reviews because that could be too late or a half year, that could just be too late or an annual review, just too late. You want to be talking to the people who are in danger based on your data. So it's all based on your own data. It's insights from your own data. Mm. It's nothing to do with someone else coming in externally. This is insights from your own data. So I think that is this predictive lead scoring and predicting customer churn are two really interesting aspects that. I've seen not being addressed in the mid markets space. So Salesforce and HubSpot do do, I guess, versions of this, but not in the uh, what I call um, deep uh, learning, machine learning way. And it's 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 just done in a it's done it's done more akin to the bucket approach. I, I was about, about to that. say I can yeah. see the buckets here. Yeah, it's more the buckets. Now, in fairness. I I won't say the the name of the CRM, but, uh, you know, we were approached by one of the largest CRMs in the world there um, a few weeks ago who who asked us to explain what it is we do. They'd seen some stuff on on social that we were doing, and we explained it to them, and they said that they had an internal think tank during the summer and that the winner was Graphite, Graphite Note. And I said, well, we didn't know you during the summer. Mm. He said exactly. It's what Graphite Note does is what... Was voted on as being the single most important thing that we should focus on in terms of product development, which is predictive lead scoring. Now, similarly, to what what this person told us was that their product team—it's not in their, uh, not, not in the wheelhouse—but they make a decision. The same as Apple and the App Store, they they all have app marketplaces, so they're looking for companies like us to come in and integrate with them as as a as a distribution point for our product, and they'll take a piece of the action. Uh, in terms of the the license fee um, and we get to serve their customers. So we go in and we essentially integrate with their uh, ecosystem. And and, and that's how they build their business. So it's a fantastic model. Salesforce do it really well.
1: But it's exciting, eh?
0: It's exciting. Yeah. Like to Mm. me, to me, ideas are one thing, but distribution is everything. So like you could have a great business, but if you don't know how to distribute (laughs) it. Well, yeah. It's like if you don't know how to distribute it to your customers or to your target market and think about it as an accelerant, like CRM companies are dealing with thousands and thousands and thousands of customers every day who are telling them the things that they're looking for. So if we can kind of focus on where where they're looking for our type of solution, so many of them don't know yes. So that's going to be a big part of our H you know, H one or first half of the year kind of noise mm-hmm. that we're gonna get out there in, in terms of digital marketing and our, our, our I suppose our brand marketing piece is is make creating more awareness that there are the possibilities to do machine learning, almost DIY data science without investing in data science teams, without investing in in sophisticated technologies, you know, all for 20, 30k per year in terms of of a deal size. So it's very, very easy now for people to access this, whereas it wasn't before.
1: Fantastic. Tell me, what would you like to leave
0: people with today? Probably three key things. Number one, sales is a science and more than an art. So, be the four, be the curious four year old and keep asking why. Mm. Yeah. Who did you speak with yesterday and spoke to such as, oh that's great. Who else do you speak with? Well I didn't have time. Why? Mm. Um because there was two other companies there. Would you not speak with them? Well if I did I'd have to get someone else to this me. Okay. Well maybe we will because that you, you your value is more important to us being out there talking to customers. So that's one sales and science um and more so than an art. Um data uh removes a lot of barriers or perceived barriers. It's it's you know if you can present data or access data usually and tell you ninety percent of the story. And um, so it's you know it's not a mysterious. And um, going back to the acting, a mysterious art. So that's, that's the second thing. And um, for 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 leaders and businesses who are afraid of sales, get out, just get out on the road and listen to customers. And um, you will be surprised how how willing they are to help um, and ask for help. And um, that's absolutely and another often one. often how intoxicating
1: it is to do that.
0: Yeah, it's hugely intoxicating. Look, uh, You know, part of the thing I, lo- I love about the the face to face execution stuff, which is why I was kind of veering away from the courses more is the energy I get in the room. Mm. You know, the energy or virtually even the energy you get from work. I love working with other people. I love learning from other people. So I'm, a, I'm a, probably a learner more so even than a, an educator in many respects. Mm. And a lot of the stuff that I might be perceived to educate on is learning from elsewhere. Like I'm sharing, mm. you know, you know other people's experiences. Um, I met a guy last week, and he had the same challenge as you, and this is what he did to get over. Could that be a place? Oh, that that's actually really interesting. Uh, did you know I didn't know this. I only knew myself a week ago when I met the guy, you know, so <laughs> it's that that transparency around sharing good practice, I think is really important. but uh, you know, don't and don't be I suppose the last thing I would say there is, you know, don't try and be this um, you know, and what's the term here? um no man is an island, that's it, or no one is an island. Just be open to learning. There's so much good knowledge out there, like there's a lot of information, but there's so much good knowledge out there. And I think just look to others to you know, who've done it, who've got experience or relevance, and you know don't take everything verbatim. Even people like me will advise you. but the world is full of people with opinions. It's okay. like look for good data or look for that balance of 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 guidance some insight, some data and a bit of intuition and make make the cake that way. But don't, don't try and do it all yourself. It's tough enough. And um, why would you do it yourself if there's if there's available kind of help there? And good help.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Vinnie. That was fantastic.
0: Good. Glad you enjoyed it. I
1: hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Vinnie, then look him up on LinkedIn under Vinnie Lynch or check out graphite-note.com. That's G-R-A-P-H-I-T-E note.com. And if you'd like to support the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. It's a chance to tell me what you love about the show and helps others discover it too. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care.